BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to episode 662 with my guest, Ruth Golden. I'm Paul Gilmartin. You're listening to the Mental Illness Happy Hour, which is a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, The show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office, more like a waiting room. Uh, And speaking of waiting room, the um, support group, online, Zoom, hangout, whatever you want to call that we do on Sunday afternoons, had another great one this last Sunday. And we talked about... um, having narcissists in our in our lives and how to kind of navigate that and red flags to look for and why sometimes we're drawn to them. If you've never heard the uh, interview that I did with uh, Ramani Dervasala, she is an expert on narcissists. And uh, I can't remember the name of the book that she wrote, but she was a great guest. And a lot of people really, really liked that episode. Um. Still need financial help. Uh, as much as I hate saying this every week, I, I have to keep saying it because for those of you that haven't listened the last two months, uh, I had to make an ethical decision to walk away from the primary source of income for this podcast. Um, it just didn't feel right to me to continue doing it, and it has uh, left the the podcast in a, a financial free fall. And so I'm trying to encourage people to help out financially in whatever way they can, whether it's a one-time donation through PayPal or Venmo um, or a recurring monthly donation through PayPal or hopefully Patreon because then you can qualify for some some goodies. And one of those is if you're at the $20 a month subscriber level on Patreon, you get to be a part of the waiting room online hangout that we do every Sunday. And we just added a Discord server to it, and so now it's cool because people who've been getting to know each other are uh, communicating with each other throughout the week, and uh, I love it. I love it. Uh, on a sad note, <laughs> I've fallen off the video game bandwagon and have been obsessively playing Civilization. Uh, it's so good. It's so anesthetizing, but I... I don't know about you guys, but if you ever have something that you kind of compulsively overdo, sometimes the universe will give you like a little a little shot in the ribs to be like, 
this is starting to become a problem. So every morning I wake up and if I've been playing video games the night before, I'm, I'm foggy. And so part of my practice every morning is one of the first things I do is I go outside and I sit and I meditate for 20 minutes and then I pray. And I, so I finish meditating and uh, I get on my knees when I pray. And normally the beginning of my prayers is God, uh, give me knowledge of your, uh, plan and the willingness to carry it out (laughs) and I got on my knees and my brain was so foggy the first thing that came out of my mouth was hey Siri (laughs) what the fuck yeah that's a wake-up call that is a wake-up call that I am I'm getting spaced out uh I saw a really cool thing on I think I saw it on YouTube It's part of the New Yorker documentary series. They have a bunch of really great uh, short documentary pieces, and this one is called Stranger at the Gate. And I don't want to spoil it, but it's one of the greatest short documentaries I've seen, and I think it won an Oscar. It's about a half hour long. Stranger at the Gate. Just Google it. This is from the Back in Time survey, and this is filled out by... (laughs) friendly neighborhood weirdo uh she shares a moment in her life where she wishes she could go back in time and say something to herself she writes i wish i could travel back in time and protect younger me from my parents i would want to be able to pull little me aside and tell her she was not stupid she wasn't worthless or a bad child she wasn't making mom sick or killing mom because she didn't always listen I would want to tell her how hurt her mom was and how stressed she was for being an undocumented mother who had no support and was in a toxic marriage. I would want to shield her and take the beatings for her and encourage her to dream big, to be, I assume you mean take the the adult you, take the beatings for the little you, um, to be loud and laugh and get dirty on the playground. I would want her to know how loved she is and would want her to know she was worthy and deserved to be alive. Wow, that that is deep. Thank you for that. And I really love the compassion um, that you can see as an adult, the, the compassion you have towards your mom and how overwhelmed she was. Thank you for that. This is a uh, same survey. This one is filled out by a woman, a uh, young woman. She's uh, 18. Uh, she calls herself ashamed. And she writes, uh, I would go back in time and tell myself not to ask my cousin and uncle and aunt if she could sleep in bed with me. She was six years old and I was 15. I feel so disturbed about it now. I had no intentions of touching her and we were always wearing clothing. I wasn't in any way sexually attracted to her, but thinking about it makes me think of my mom and the weird things she would do with me. My cousin also asked that I stop tickling her. Again, I would do it to make her laugh, not for sexual reasons. And of course, I stopped then after. But I feel gross. I feel like my subconscious would have had an ulterior motive or that my cousin is now scarred. I think that is all in your head and you sound like a good egg to me. Uh, who whose mean voice in your brain is trying to make something up to punish you and um there there's from from what you have described here 
your interactions with your your niece or your cousin. I I don't see anything creepy or weird. So my, that's my two cents. This is from the love survey filled out by Frank. And Frank writes, I love going to the movies alone, sitting in the center of the back row with the soda. I love realizing that I prefer spending time alone and that that's okay. I love fucking a kind but aggressive man. I love that I'm genuinely kind and I work on myself and that I can turn my inward anger into understanding and art when I try. I love campiness in Barbie bright colors and I love dressing in all black in a darkly decorated home. I love organizing things and styling people. I love philosophy and figuring out a balance between treating people well and sticking to my ethics. You sound like you, you would be a good, uh, a good guest, Frank. Thank you for that. This is from the Memorable Vacation Arguments uh, survey. And this is filled out by Riv. And Riv writes, My ex-girlfriend and I were on vacation in Mexico City and decided to go to the torture museum. It wasn't as sexy as we hoped. All of the torture documented in the museum was viciously perpetrated by the Catholic Church against heretics. It was more depressing and anger-inducing than cool. I'm a little, and this is not me judging you, I'm a little confused what you thought the torture museum was going to be. Um, the flight to Mexico had already put me in a bad mood. I usually enjoy flying, but she hated it, so I had to spend the whole time on the plane keeping her crippling anxiety at bay. We managed to fight about everything, from her thinking everyone around us were thieves trying to rob us, with me accusing her of being paranoid and racist, to her thinking I was checking out every woman we passed on the street. By the time we left the torture museum, I think we had both given up on the trip. When she got food poisoning from a taco truck on our last day, I was secretly pleased with the instant karma of it all. You guys might need to now be a, a display in the torture museum. It wasn't just limited to the Crusades or the uh, the Inquisition. It also applied to a brief week-long trip by two people from the States. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself... Uh, Wildflower, I believe we've read her surveys before. Uh, she asks, if you could travel in time just once, would you choose to go to the past or the future? What year and what would you do when you got there? This one's a pretty easy one for me, even though I'm tempted to go dinosaur or try to figure out the truth of things that are cloudy from my childhood. Hands down, I would go into Abbey Road Studios in 1965, 1966 and watch the Beatles put Revolver together. That would be heaven. And uh, she also asked, can you interview some people with dyscalculia, dyscalculia uh, and how it affects them in everyday life? Yes, if, if there's somebody who can uh, be interviewed in person that is, is local in Los Angeles. And I had to look it up because I was not familiar with it, but it's a learning disability that people have that uh, anything that has to do with uh, numbers or 
or math. I would imagine that that's got to be a real fucking pain in the ass. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this is filled out by Bella. And Bella writes uh, about her love addiction. Going through a breakup and going no contact, I haven't eaten for three days, so I won't have the energy to formulate a suicide plan. That is darkly funny. I was playing a hockey with a guy one time, and I hadn't seen him in a couple of months. And the next time I saw him, he was 50 pounds lighter. And I, I said, Boris, what, what, what's up? And he said, I got broken up with and I haven't eaten. Like, wow. I get it, though. This is also from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Rob and uh, about experiencing covert incest. He writes, the thing I am desperately yearning for also feels so fucking uncomfortable and weird. And then a snapshot from his life. My mom trying to comfort me, or sometimes make peace, and massaging my shoulders. It felt very inappropriate. Shrugging and bringing my shoulders up to defend slash avoid. Feeling uncomfortable and guilty at the same time. Like I should have maybe accepted slash let her do it. And I think that's a really, really common thing that the the mind of the child who's being parentified or incested is they've been groomed to put that parent's emotional needs ahead of their own and it just kind of disconnects you from your your instinct and your um autonomy This is from the uh, Religious Abuse slash Trauma Survey, and this is filled out by our friend Wildflower again, and she writes, Both of my parents are super religious, uh, in parentheses, Catholic. They're separated. My dad lives in another state, but constantly sends us texts saying we are sinners and are going to purgatory for not going to church every Sunday. My mother is in the choir of a few churches, and I help with it a lot, not out of choice, but my dad continues to tell me it doesn't matter how much you do on other days. If you're not going to church on a Sunday, you are committing a mortal sin. Your dad sounds like a great guy. He sounds creative. He sounds open-minded. He sounds flexible. And I would like to get to know him. He is always going on about hell and purgatory and how gay and trans people are going to hell and how against abortion he is. And it is embarrassing as he says this stuff in public when he comes to visit, like sitting at a cafe and people stare. I don't agree with any of it, but he won't listen to reason. I hate it. He makes me feel like everything I do is evil and I am on my way to hell anyway, so might as well do the wrong thing because there is no hope. How has, how have these experiences affected you or your view of religion? It has made me hate religion and not want to be involved in it. They seem so close-minded and backwards. At the same time, I feel as though I am doomed to suffer more after I die, as if I am not already suffering enough in life, and listening to his bullshit is just more suffering. Uh, and then uh, any comments to make the podcast better? And by the way, the, the, the last thing that I read, even more reason to go watch that thing that I mentioned, uh, The Stranger at the Gate, because it kind of ties in to, to this. Um, 
Any comments to make the podcast better? I love the nut butter music and stories you tell. I wish I knew what episodes they were to go back and re-listen to them. I want this as my ringtone. Paul, it makes me laugh so much when that music plays and you start talking. I love it. Um, I searched for that. It took me a long time, but I finally figured out it was from the episode with Luke Palmer from 2018. And uh, maybe I'll throw a little of uh, a little of that bit in. Uh, towards towards the end of the show. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And then finally, I want to play, uh, this is a snippet from many years ago. Uh, it's a happy moment that, uh, that we read that I, I stumbled across and really like. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by a guy uh, in his 60s. And he calls himself should be mad, instead just sad. Interesting name for a happy moment. He's, 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 uh, he's covering both sides of the bet. And he writes, uh, last Sunday, a gay family was two pews in front of me, so I had an hour to spy on them, which is great to start with. One dad had the metrosexual look of an urbanite from the Far East. The other dad had the swarthy good looks of someone from the Arab world. The daughter, about three, had the alabaster skin and blonde curly hair you see in those old British children's books. During the final hymn, she put her hand on the small of her dad's back and kissed his hip so lightly that he didn't notice. Then she put her tiny hand in his, and he kept it there as we finished the final stanzas. The small beauty of that familial moment almost brought me to tears. That was the same morning Trump unleashed his racist tweets on America and doubled down for days. When that ugliness got too much, I recalled that lovely improbable family my consciousness might be disintegrated heavy weighted blanket on my brain symptomatically and i can't think straight things present themselves for a reason and i can't see straight i couldn't even drive the first movie that i remember watching with him post-traumatic stress when i was like five years old was pulp fiction <laughs> and moral injury i would act out the scenes gonna go to hell with or my barbies <laughs> The greatest source of our suffering Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens Is our willingness to experience and accept our emotions It is very hard to heal in dark isolation I developed compassion It is in connection and community where that happens The process was nearly unbearable Like, I'm going to have to kill myself We'll be right back after this <laughs> I'm here with uh, Ruth Golden and Gracie and uh, you were recommended by a friend of mine, Juliet uh, M. I don't know if she wants to be publicly known, but uh, what a sweet soul. Yes, she absolutely. is. Yeah. Shout out to 
Juliet and uh, Dita yes. and the ghost of Toro or two. Well, one is no longer. But Boy, I've digressed at 28 seconds <laughs> into the podcast. Thank you for coming, Ruth. Thanks for having me. I watched a YouTube clip of the documentary you're putting together about such a heavy subject. Mm -hmm. Tell us. Tell us about it. Well, basically, the short story is that my mom died by suicide when I was 19, and then my family didn't talk about it. Like, we put her in the grave and buried all talk about her. So it was like she just kind of disappeared. We didn't talk about the death or her life or anything. And then um, about 30 years later, I had my own little mental breakdown. Actually, when my dog got diagnosed with cancer, I had a massive panic attack in a Target and then went into a really deep depression. I mean, I've lived with depression my whole life, but this was worse than anything. And I got scared and I got some help. And um, I realized that um, that a lot of what I was putting onto my dog had to do with sort of unresolved mm -hmm. grief about my mom. And then I started um, volunteering. I wanted to find out more about suicide loss. And so I started volunteering for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Great, yeah, great organization. Absolutely. And um, I joined a support group, too, which was the first time I even realized that there was this thing called suicide loss survivors and that we'd all been through a lot. And I met so many people whose stories were so similar to mine that, you know, their families hadn't talked about it and they suffered in the same ways I had over the years. And that um, it just all of a sudden seems stupid. Like, have, have you seen Running from Crazy? The Mariel Hemingway documentary? Yes, yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was good. And, and that moment where she attends a rally where you wear a necklace mm -hmm. if if you are the loved one of someone. Yeah. And she looked like she was at Mardi Gras on the last day. Yeah. Just so many suicides. Yeah. And that's what family. I've discovered. So many people, like every time I talk about what I'm doing or talk about suicide, somebody comes up, out to me with, oh, I lost this person or I lost this person. And it's just nobody ever talks about it. So, yeah. you know, that was sort of my goal is like, let me break the silence with my family and maybe it'll encourage others to start breaking their own silence. So talk about, um, take, take me through it. You're at college, you're 19. Um, were you totally shocked or was there a part of it that you were like, I I kind of understand? Well, I, I was totally blindsided by it. My mom actually was suffering from cancer, um, but because education was so important to my family, um, my parents really kept how serious her disease was from us. And my grandfather died. Um, he died on January 11th. His funeral was January 14th. And my mom was at the funeral. And then the next day she killed herself. So I was I was called into the dean's office and told by the dean, you know, he just no preface, just like your father called with some very bad news. Your mother killed herself this morning. So I was blindsided, like even for the fact that maybe she'd be dead of cancer or something like that didn't even occur to me because I wasn't told, you know, she it was her second round. Um, she'd been she'd originally been diagnosed with um, Hodgkin's disease and went through radiation therapy and all that. And she came through with flying colors and then it recurred as non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And that's when things started to get bad. But me and my sister, I have an older sister. She's a year and a half older than me. Um, we were just kind of led to believe that, that it was just really bad chemo, which is why she looked so sick and, you know, whatever. And 
now I can see what a deep depression she was in. But at the time, you know, we just thought it was horrible treatment and that once she got through it, everything would go back to normal. And, you know, suicide at that point, I think I'd never considered. I, I'd seen the movie Ordinary People. Um, and I don't know if you ever saw the movie The End with Burt Reynolds, which is kind of a... I have not, but uh, Ordinary People, a profound movie. Yeah, but The End's kind of like a comedy where this guy's trying to kill himself in all these different ways. But that was that was it you know, as far as suicide went. And so it, like the words just made no sense to me, the the whole concept and anything I did know about it. It's like, well, she's not the type, you know, she was a social worker. She's a great mom, you know, she's a force in the community and all that stuff and not the type of person that, I mean, I know now there is no type, but right. not somebody who lived with depression or that anything's we saw we would have seen it coming you know it was situational uh your your mom was a social worker and yet your family didn't talk about yeah. feelings did, did, had she been somebody who talked about feelings well looking back like i i grew up kind of in a perfect house we call it like the leave it to beaver house like it, there was nothing wrong we took piano lessons dance lessons you know everything like a normal suburban kid would do um, looking back now, I can see I at least I didn't feel like I could share my problems. I know I kept a lot of stuff inside because I think I felt my, my dad's whole side of the family are doctors and my mom's whole side are social workers. So I felt like, OK, we're people that help people. We don't ask for help. So I think I was always inhibited by that. So I don't think there was a lot of sharing. Do you have any memories of attempting to share your feelings? Um. One time, um, this girl like accused me of stealing gum from a store, which I didn't. Um, <laughs> but for like a month, I went around thinking every time I saw the police or whatever that they were going to come arrest me. And I finally told my mom about it. And, you know, I got her in a private setting and told her. And I, I sort of feel like she kind of laughed about it, you know, like comforted me, but also was sort of like, that's so ridiculous. Like, right. even if you did steal it, they're not going to, the police aren't going to come after you for gum. Um, did you feel like she was laughing at you rather than, as you can see now as an adult? I, I suppose as a kid, you couldn't see the adult perspective, which is she's Yeah, making. more laughing at the situation, like making, making me feel stupid because she saw the situation as so ridiculous. Like, not right. like she was laughing at me for having feelings, but just laughing at what the feelings were. Right, right. If that makes sense. Um, yeah, it does. It does make sense. Um, and so that to you was kind of like, oh, so this is what happens when you are vulnerable. I think so. Yeah. And I know I, there was a bully that I had in like fourth or fifth grade that I wouldn't tell them about, I think, because I was embarrassed. So now I don't I don't think I felt able to really share my my deepest, darkest yeah. emotions. Was it a female or male bully? Female. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, you're 19. The news gets broken to you. Um, what, do, what are you thinking and feeling in that moment? I mean, it just felt like the world dropped out from under me. I just, I couldn't comprehend it. Like, because I'd seen her less than 24 hours before, you know, and like I said, I was just, that was not the the idea of her dying was not even in my imagination at that point. But um, what was interesting was my sister and I went to the same college. And so they had found me first and told me. And then the dean asked me, do you want to wait while we find your sister so you can be here? And I said, no. 
So that to me was sort of like the beginning of the silence, you know, that I started it because, and I don't know why, like whether I didn't want her to see my emotions, I didn't want to see her emotions or whether I just didn't want to stay in the room with the strangers while they, we waited for her. You know, I have no idea why I said no, but that's always, always sort of haunted me over the 30 years was, could it have been different? Like if I'd stayed there, would we have hugged? Would we have talked and cried together, you know? come up with all these questions that we might have asked my dad when we got home, but it was just complete silence. And then on the way to the airport, complete silence, you know, and the whole way home. Cause we, we went to school in Minnesota and we lived in Memphis, Tennessee. So the whole plane ride home was, I think, you know, maybe I asked her at the airport, do, will you watch my bag while I go to the bathroom? <laughs> that oh was my about God, it. That's so awful. So, yeah, that sounds so lonely. Yeah, it was but it was also, but just my head was spinning too. It's because at first I, I remember um, like during the car ride, I just kept, my mind kept flipping through all the pictures in our, um, in our photo albums, thinking of all the good times. Like she was so alive to me, you know, and that's like, I couldn't comprehend death. So you get home, get you home. see your dad. Dad's there. Still silent. Well, that night he um, he kind of went through the details of the day. Like he'd gone to work um, and he called home and she didn't answer the phone. And so he got worried and he drove home and he raced around the house looking for her and couldn't find her. Um, and so he called the police and the, they found her in a closet. She'd, she'd hanged herself and sort of fallen behind some clothes, which is why he didn't see her. Um, and that was it. And he shared and he shared her note with us, um, which also disappeared for 30 years i did find it i have found it now so i know what it says but at the time you know it was just sort of the gist of like her saying that you know i'm a burden to the family you know i'm using up all our resources with the cancer and the medical treatments and stuff um distracting me and my sister from school and then my my dad we actually i grew up in texas and then we just moved to memphis like three months before she died because my dad got a big new job and so she felt like she was holding him back from that. And that was kind of the basics of the story I had in my head for 30 years of why she did it. And from what I understand, uh, we had Kevin Briggs on uh, the podcast and he was a uh, CHP. I think that's when he was in. But his beat was the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm -hmm. And so he talked many people uh, off the ledge. But he said he, he learned after a while to not talk, but just listen, mm -hmm. ask them what's going on. And he said the overwhelming majority, the most common thing they said was they felt like a burden. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's what I try to explain people. I do this thing now called um, healing conversations where people that have, have recent losses call for some peer support. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the big thing. It's like, it doesn't make sense to you, but that, and you know that they weren't a burden, but you, you got to think about their thinking and mm -hmm. what was going on in their head. And that's, that is from, I mean, all the stories I've heard, that is one of the biggest reasons. What have you um, gotten out of peer support? Um, well, in, initially, you know, when I, I went to a support group first and, and that was incredible to me, just learning that there were other people that, that had, um, gone through this. And um, I, I actually felt guilty when I first went into the support group because most of the people were within six months of their loss. And here I was 30 years later. 
but I was, I'd never really experienced that first year of grief because I just had to shut everything down immediately since I had nobody to talk to about it. And, um, just one question, hold your thought where you are. (laughs) Uh, as you look back, are you able to see that year that you pushed it down, how it was coming out? if it was coming out at all in other ways that at the time you didn't realize, oh, this is related? Um, Probably just mostly internalizing things and really becoming, I mean, I've always been an introvert, but more of an introvert, more isolated and, you know, bad TV habit, Uh, (laughs) things like that, you know, just really avoidance, I think, was the big thing that came out of it. So pulling, just kind of pulling back in, in yeah. general. Okay. Uh, can continue. With um, oh, so when, so just, I was able to experience kind of the first year of grief, like as people hit milestones, birthdays and things, I started thinking about that. So it helped me so much. And then also in that same group, you know, by sharing my story, even 30 years down the line, they were telling me that it was helpful to hear me because I could validate what they were going through and they could also see me as somebody that had survived it and could survive it. Like I could walk out of the group and go on and have a normal day where they're just going to go home and, you know, be flat out because they're still in massive grieving thing, but that, that it is something that's survivable. So that that's what really inspired me to really start talking about it and sharing my story with with other people. Do you have some friendships from those uh, support groups? Yeah, I stayed. I stayed close to. Um, there were five in the group, and four of them, like for for a while, for a couple of years afterwards, we met. Um, we met up like at, probably monthly, you know, and go to breakfast and stuff. And I'm still I'm still in touch on social media with a couple of them. Some have moved away and whatever. But yeah, I mean, I'll always feel a bond with these people because we went through that. Talk about that bond and uh, particularly what you feel in your body when you began to feel that bond form. One of the things that that I am a broken record about on this podcast is the power of peer-to-peer, especially in support groups. And I was so astounded by, I don't know, the sense of relief and comfort. Yeah. That that I felt, and I have a hard time sometimes articulating it. it can you articulate what, if I, you remember, how, what you began to feel in your body or thoughts? Or I think just the like relaxing of the back and the shoulders and things. Like usually when you know, what, like when I think of even in the support group, when I thought of talking to my family, you know, I'd curl up almost into a fetal ball at the thought of of trying to bring this up but in the support group i think i just basically just relaxed like my muscles relaxed no chest tightening things like that that it just you know an ease that that i hadn't felt i mean i hadn't really talked about the whole situation before i started the support group i think i'd told maybe a handful of people over the course of my life what had happened, people that I was really close to, or one friend whose grandmother died by suicide. I shared my story mm-hmm. with her, but we never talked about it much after that. So this was really the first time that that I was really um, sharing. So it, it was just that, yeah, that kind of just breathe out. Like, this is this is a safe space, and I can say what I want, and I can feel what I want, and I can cry, and everybody knows it. I mean— How soon in did you did you cry? 
Oh, I was crying like immediately. I was crying as much as the people who were at the coffee and donuts before the meeting started. <laughs> no, not quite that. But as soon as we started talking, were you skeptical about the support group, or was it more hopeful? Or um, at first, I I was a little skeptical because um, I I've like I said I've sort of had depression my whole life, um, mostly untreated. And the few times I had gone to therapy, I'd go like it would because I was in crisis about something. And as soon as that something was sort of alleviated, I'd quit. Um, so I didn't think I was the type, you know, that therapy could help me. And I still don't know that individual therapy. I mean, it has helped me at specific points in my life now. But um, I, I felt better in the support group. I, I like the community sharing. I like the give and take and the, the validation and the commiseration and, and all that that you get from, you know, it's, I mean, everybody with a huge problem calls it the club that nobody wants to belong to. But, yeah. you know, it's that immediate connection with people that would otherwise be strangers that you're telling this, you know, I felt closer to the people in that group than I did to my own family because I was able to talk about this stuff. Do you feel um, that the relationships that you formed or the vulnerability that you experienced in that support group, that it uh, had ripples, positive ripples outside of the topic of grief? Um, oh, absolutely. Oh, talk about the, the ways that, that that healing affected other areas of your life. It, well, I, I was sort of in a miserable state anyway. I, I was, I call it my 10 year slide. I worked in television and, and things, the, the industry changed and I wasn't loving the jobs that I was getting. You know, I was working more just for the money than for the love of it after a while. And um, that it kind of made me stop doing that. Like I, that's when I turned to volunteering and dog sitting, <laughs> kind of got out of the industry because I realized, you know, things were making me miserable and tense. And, you know, the relief I felt there just gave me confidence and sort of a sense of purpose. And, and it was actually in the support group that I came up with the idea for this documentary um, when I was explaining to other people how horrible it was to be silent about it for 30 years. You know, I sort of got that Oprah light bulb moment, like, well, why don't I just get my family to talk? And then quickly, because I worked in television, I'm like, and I can make a film about it. Um so it really, it completely changed my life that way. And, you know, it it made me focus on something I felt was important. And like when I was volunteering um, with, with the AFSP, I'd say, you know, handing out flyers at a health fair is more satisfying to me at this point than seeing my name roll across the screen on a credit, you know, because I just, I felt like I was making a difference because it was making such a difference for me. Yeah. One of the things that, that I find when I'm, I don't know, being of service or doing something where it feels right in my body is that mean voice in my head that tells me I'm not doing life right shuts off. Mm -hmm. Do you experience that yeah. too? Yeah. Because I always feel like I'm not doing it enough, you know? The, and so, yeah, when I'm, like I said, when I'm at a health fair, even just handing out flyers, it's like if someone wants the flyer, they want it for a reason. You know, I mean, some people, I guess, take it just to be nice. But, you know, it's it's actively helping somebody, mm -hmm. even if you even if it's not tangible, you know, you know that 
it would have helped you. And so it's yeah. probably going to help somebody else. Have you ever had anybody open up to you at the fair when you handed uh, them? Oh, yeah, always. Sure. Every, sure about that. Just every time, like, someone will say, oh, I just lost this person or I lost that person. And they'll want to talk about it, you know. And like you said before, sometimes it's just the listening. Like, people, because there's so few people to talk to about it, anybody that can lend an ear or can understand, you want to you wanna talk about it. So people just just nonstop share their stories there's there's always at least one you know sometimes multiple ones that that'll come out with you know their own loss so when you're in that position what have you learned uh in terms of how to react what how to carry yourself when somebody's unburdening themselves yeah i mean luck- luckily enough um, i was enough past my loss that I didn't fall apart. Like, like we always recommend people wait at least a year before they even think about volunteering because you need to sort of process your own stuff. So luckily I, I pretty well processed um, that. So, I mean, I can, I can maintain my composure definitely because a few times, like depending on the story, I, I might tear up, but usually it's just listening and then sort of sharing my own, my own experiences, like if they'll say something and I'll say, well, yeah, I felt that when this and this happened or, you know, just kind of mirroring what they're saying and, and validating what they're saying. Hold on one second. Okay. So you were saying. Oh, just, you know, I, I tend to mirror back what people say and share my own experiences. And because that's, that's what comforted me is just knowing others had gone through kind of the BS that I'd gone through over the years and, and that we're all kind of in it together that, that, you know, suicide's just so unlike other kinds of deaths, not that it's worse or, or whatever. It's just different because all these other things come with it. All the, you know, it's traumatic, it's sudden. And then you have all these questions and could I have done guilt. more? Is that one? Absolutely. Could I have done more? Why didn't I see it? Or, you know, if only I, you know, a lot of people like to say, well, I was going to call them last night. If only I'd called them to which I say, well, yeah, you could have called them last night and it could have changed things last night. And then this morning could have come and mm-hmm. it could have happened anyway, you know, cause it's, it's, you don't know. Like I think the people I've talked to, that have attempted suicide and survived tell me that there's like a tunnel vision, you know, that's the only option they see. So, you know, you have to try and prevent it, obviously, you know, that's why I work for suicide prevention. But I think in some cases, like my mom's, I think it was inevitable. So when you're working the phones of uh, suicide hotline, I don't do, no, I don't do hotline. Oh, okay. <laughs> that would freak me out. Okay, because because I think my own depression, I'd be like, See. I'd be like, yeah, I yeah, this makes sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I stay away from hotline. I deal more with survivors, like the, the oh, okay, the survivors of a suicide okay. loss. Uh, we'll talk about uh, if there was an arc of that first year of you processing things, kind of what that looked like. Um, well, at first I was just completely lost. Um, my dad sent me and my sister back to school the day after the funeral. So I was just kind of thrown back into the world saying, well, just move forward. And, and didn't he say something to you, uh, along, along those lines? I mean, wasn't there like a sentence that he said about, 
we need to get on with our lives yeah, and move forward. Yeah. What, what was the exact sentence that he move said? Move forward. <laughs> Just move forward. <laughs> you know? I mean, I don't remember the conversation about going back to school. Like, I sort of assumed we'd go to my grandmother's house in Florida and, you know, sit around and commiserate for a while, whatever. But he's like, no, you know, he comes from the the post-World War II generation of, you know, you just you get on with things, you know, you, you try to keep things as normal as possible and just move forward. So, um, my sister was able to do that. She found school very comforting and, you know, had a group of supportive friends and things. And not that my friends wouldn't have been supportive, but I think we were also young. We didn't really know how to deal with this kind of situation. And I didn't want to, you know, burden anybody with my sadness or whatever. So again, I, I went into escapism, um, I'm very boring. I didn't get into drugs or drinking. I got into general hospital. Um, <laughs> That's fantastic. People magazine and pretty much anything sort of mindless distraction. Um, but I ended up quitting school because um, I just I stopped going to class. I mean, I, I didn't really want to go to college in the first place. But like I said, education, my family, it was that's just what you do. Um, but then I felt like my mom kind of ditched me there somewhere I didn't really want to be. So, you know, in in a way, I felt a sense of freedom, which I did feel guilty for because at what cost? But um, I felt so um, I badgered my dad to let me come home. So um, I moved home, got a job in a record store and just kind of, um, you know, just made a pretty boring life of TV working and not talking to my dad. I mean, we were like roommates that didn't necessarily want to be friends. You know, <laughs> we would just pass each other on the stairs because he threw himself into his work. And, you know, my work wasn't that challenging. So there was nothing really to throw myself into. But um, so there was that. And then it was sort of a new normal, just daily, whatever, you know, the, the, the grind. And then um, nine months later, he announced he was getting married again. So that threw me for another loop, um, you know, because the whole you're replacing my mom and mm -hmm. I didn't actually even know he was really dating anybody. He hadn't, again, no communication. He hadn't really shared that with me. So I was blindsided by that. Um, and then he got married. Um, so then I went off to uh, I convinced him to send me to a program abroad in Israel um, to get over that hump. Um, so it was just a lot of avoidance and escapism and not really doing anything productive. So uh, fast forwarding to that first year uh, in your support group, um, is there a typical arc of processing, you know, similar to the seven stages of, or how many stages? Yeah, I think seven. You know? um, I think it's just, you know, absorbing what happened is first because it's so out of your realm. And, you know, there's so, there's so many different stories, too. I mean, luckily, I wasn't at home. I didn't find the body. Like, that's its own trauma. You know, there's so there were some people in my group who had found the body. And, you know, so there's absorbing all that stuff. And then there's really all the questions about suicide, like the guilt and the, the anger about, you know, why did you do this to me? And the guilt of what could I have done? Or I should have been able to stop it. Um, or what did I do to cause it? You know, any of these things. Um, um, and then, let's see, and then there's just sort of the thing that I never got to in my first year was the grieving, you know, because you're so focused on the suicide and what happened. 
and the type of death it was that you don't really focus on the loss. And that's what hit me the 30 years later was all this time I'd been living with loss, but I hadn't really acknowledged it. I just kept chugging forward and, you know, in, in my escape. So how did you get in touch with that feeling? Was it just by having the conversations in the support group that you were able to let truths sink in or come out or well i did well because what's what changed the whole thing was my little breakdown in target when when my dog big important question what what aisle of target you know it it was i went in to get a diet coke because i dropped my dog off for a biopsy at um at a clinic and i went in to get a diet coke and instead of going to the cash register i went to the um customer service desk and i said i don't feel well and i dropped to the floor <laughs> really <laughs> and they got firemen and an ambulance and the whole thing and it was a panic attack yeah it was a, pan- a massive uh-huh. panic attack and my first one ever and then um so i was in the hospital for that and then um i just sunk into a massive depression like for a month and a half i was just like crying and not able to function and finally I did call my dad because I, I didn't have any money. I needed help. Yeah. And I was like, I I don't know what to do with myself anymore. Like, And I'm scared. Like, something bad's going to come out of this. Like, I wasn't suicidal, but I was like, I, I just don't know what to do anymore. That, that's interesting. You, you are describing almost exactly uh, a former IRA uh, volunteer that I interviewed, I don't know, maybe five years ago, Jake McShigas. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. But he buried all of the PTSD from the troubles. Mm-hmm. And one day he was, I think, on his way to work, got in his car and couldn't move mm-hmm. and had a panic attack and finally felt yeah. all of those feelings, including massive, massive depression for right. months. But he eventually got into therapy. Yeah. And so that's what happened. I, I did get into therapy. And that's the first time I let therapy, I say I let therapy help me because I didn't have any other choice, you know, I just, I'm like, something has to change here. And that's when I got tested and stuff too, and found out I had, you know, um, what's it called? Major depressive disorder, anxiety, ADHD, <laughs> the whole thing, all the stuff I'd been living with. Like, I I knew I'd been through depressions before, but it, you know, it, it hadn't been labeled. I hadn't right. been allowed to like... It, and it was a relief. It was, you know, some. It was a relief, and it, it also made me angry because it's like, okay, I come from a family of doctors and social workers. How did nobody pick up on this one before? <laughs> if it slipped yeah. through the cracks of that, <laughs> yeah. So that was a little annoying. So uh, talk about reconnecting with your family, especially in the context of doing uh, this this movie, which is called Golden Silence. The Silent Goldens. The Silent Goldens. Yes. Um, because that's my last name. So. Yes, yes. <laughs> Share some of the conversations, some of the moments when when you became open with them. Well, I wrote, I started it off with a letter, which it took me about two months to write, you know, just finagling it, um, you know, ignoring it and going back to it. And um, because I didn't feel I could speak up, you know, and so that's how I communicated was through a letter Um and I, I wrote to my dad first because I felt like if I was going to really blow this whole thing open, I should get his blessing. Um, and I just said, like, look, th- this is what I've been going through. This is what I've realized. Um, 
And also in now that I've been talking about it to all these strangers and stuff, I realized how little I knew. I had this really concise narrative that I'd had for 30 years about what happened and why, um, and that I wanted more information. And I never considered how anybody else thought. Like, I really felt like everybody else had just moved on. So I I wrote a letter saying, I want to know everything. I'm not looking, you know, to blame you or or re-traumatize anybody, but... For me, this has been life changing to talk about it, and and I think it could help a lot because I I sort of pitched the documentary at the same time. Right, so right. I, I said it's a way to honor mom and a way to you know to to leave a legacy. So, uh, what were all of the um, motivations for doing this? You wanted more information. Uh, you wanted to help other people via a documentary. Um, were there any other m- motivations? Um, I mean, part of it was it was to like I'd never set out to be a, a filmmaker. You know, I worked like I said, I worked in television, and I always enjoyed telling stories. But you know, all of a sudden, I was like, oh my god, I have my own story to tell. You know, so why not Who use knew? my use my skills and mesh the two? And and you know, kind of I, I'd always felt guilty not going into the social services or not into a helping profession. So there was that too. It's like this could be, you know, a way for me, an entree for me to be of service. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it started with me going, you know, it's silly that we haven't talked about this and, you know, it'll help me. It's, it'll definitely help me. Maybe it'll help other people in the family. Cause like, like I said, I didn't know how anybody else felt about it because nobody talked about it. Right. So maybe it'll help them. Um, and really, is there any better way to honor your mom right. than to do this? Right. And it, it's brought her back to life in a way, too. Because, you know, before where I, I could see the pictures and the photo albums, now I sort of have, like, more stories and stuff. And can it's more of a 3D image of her in my head, you know, actually doing things and and um, interacting with people and stuff. What are some humorous moments of, of your mom, some some positive memories, if you can think of any? Um, I don't know. It's just st- silly stuff like um, birthday parties and stuff. She always gave great birthday parties, which it was the 70s. So, you know, right. like we'd play games or, you know, once she let me invite everybody to Doug Henning's magic show in <laughs> New York City because we lived in, in the suburbs till I moved till we moved to Texas. Um you know, just her her love of family. We'd always visit my grandparents in Florida and things like that. And just you know, she she loved talking on the phone to her friends. So we'd have she'd have these marathon phone conversations, and I'd lie next to her on the bed, and she'd scratch my back, and you know, I'd just listen to the adults talking and just stuff like that, just kind of normal mother stuff. Like she she wasn't she wasn't a funny person, or right? <laughs> whatever, but um, you know, just. Just kind of the normal everyday stuff has has come back more than just whatever was in the pictures of in the album, you know, just the kind of the vibe of her that that she was outgoing and you yeah. know very very um pushed us to to do things like ballet or or piano. She wanted us to try everything and you know it was i don't know <laughs> one one of the things that i always encourage people to do because it was so helpful for me was you know after you come home from the funeral of someone that you loved is if you have movies of them show them 
because there usually will be laughter and I don't know, just something about it. It feels yeah, so soothing. Yeah, we've got nothing. There, there's actually one somebody sent me. It was shot on 16 millimeter. It's a three second clip of her at a three year old's birthday party, and she moves just kind of side to side. That's all I have of her. Oh no! Yeah, we were not a video taking family. <laughs> so, talk about the conversations then that you began to have with your sister, your dad. How did they react? Um, everybody reacted great. I mean, my dad was like, "Yeah, let's do it." I mean, he re- he. I think he responded to my email within like fifteen minutes. I, I kept hitting refresh, you know, mm-hmm. and he responded pretty fast, and he was all for it. Um, my sister. It was like, yeah, definitely. You know, everybody was really positive. Everybody that I asked agreed to do it. And one of my mom's friends, um, who, who my mom was sort of her mentor, she's like 15 years younger than my mom, um, and they worked together. She said, I've been waiting 30 years for this conversation. Wow. So she felt, you know, I, well, I felt that nobody would talk to me. I guess she had reached out and I wouldn't talk to her. So however the silence came to be, it, it was strong in me, too. So what um, were some of the things that, that she said, some of the things that she had kept for 30 years? Just that she, she wanted to find out more information, like she'd never seen the note, um, things like that. Um, she was angry with my dad because um, she felt like he handled the cancer wrong. And, you know, they moved when she was sick. They moved from Texas to Memphis when she was sick. Um, and they felt like that was wrong because she lost her support system. So she... She was mad about a lot of stuff, and she was just hurt. I mean, she was just hurt by the whole thing. Like she, she felt like she lost a big sister. Um, I can't. I'm trying to think of some specifics. You know, I asked her. She was in the car when my dad dropped us off back at school because they were all going to the airport afterwards. And she's like, you know, I I kept saying to him, like, do you think this is a good idea? And he just kept saying, they'll be fine. They'll be fine. <laughs> You know, and she's like, everybody was so stoic. I didn't know what to do. So um, she she was just kind of dumbfounded that nobody would talk to her. Um, and my dad, though, you know, what came out with him was that this is the way he was brought up. Um, Shocker. Yeah. I mean, his family never talked about anything. When his grandfather died, who he was really close to, he was in college. And his family said, don't come to the funeral. Just stay in school. Keep going you know, things like that. Um, my sister was was the most shocking to me because we, we had very different takes on it. Like I said, you know, for me, school was sort of burdensome and something I didn't want to be doing. And she found it comforting. She, she graduated and everything. Um, and she was really worried. Her, her thing about the silence was she was worried she was going to open up wounds for everybody. You know, she didn't want to be the one to hurt other people by bringing anything up. Where for me, I was just like, why is nobody talking to me? Why? And I didn't feel I could. Like nobody the, – the interesting thing is some families do say like they'll come up with a lie, like say it was a heart attack or something. Mm-hmm. My family never explicitly said don't talk about it. We just never did. And so I never felt that I could. And like I said, there was always this kind of cringy fetal ball position when I thought about doing it. But she really – she was really intent on not bringing it up. She said she'd have been fine to talk about it all that time, but just she didn't want to be the one to bring it up. It's it's such a, you go first. Yeah. You know, it, it's amazing the, the ripples that can come from just 
taking a deep breath and saying, I'm going to try. Yeah. I'm going to try. This scares me, but so many of us stay stuck in just holding something in and just living a quiet, pained life. Yeah. And nothing bad happened. That's the thing. Like, it's, From it was, opening up. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like I opened up some can of worms and all these dirty secrets came out. You know, it was just understanding more where everybody else was coming from and not speaking up or, you know, like my, my aunt and uncle, my, my mom's brother and, and his wife, she said, look to us, you were kids, you know, a, a, they have their own children to deal with. We didn't live near them. And then B she's like, you were a kid to us. Like I wasn't going to have these adult conversations right. with you. So, you know, Give me some memorable moments from uh, the conversations that are in the documentary or not in the documentary. Um, I think for me, the big one is my dad just sort of saying it was a mistake. Like it was all handled wrong. And, you know, I mean, not necessarily apologizing for it, but just recognizing, recognizing that it was a mistake. Like there was um, a memorial service for her in Texas um, where we'd grown up that um, he didn't bring us to because he felt like, you know, and in my head, I, I'd always given the excuse, well, he, maybe he didn't want us to see him be too emotional or maybe there were financial problems between the medical bills and all the funerals and stuff. Um, and when I asked him, he's like, no, uh, honestly, like, I just felt like you were back in school and I didn't want to take you out again. And it was a mistake. It was a huge mistake. And what did it feel like hearing that? It felt like a relief, like even on camera, I just go, okay, okay, you know, because that's, that's how I felt. Like I just needed somebody to acknowledge it, I guess, you know, and it, it was powerful. It was nothing, but it was powerful. Yeah, it it, it sounds like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it does not sound <laughs> well, like I mean, nothing. Nothing in, in that. It's just him saying like, right. I made a mistake. Right. And, Anything else you'd uh, oh, like to share? Um, I don't know. I can't think of any. Well, you're in post-production right now. Post-production. Um, and uh, do you know anything that, uh, where it's going to be able to be seen, when you anticipate it coming out? Do you need help in any way from people you still need financial um, I support? still need financial help I'm still fundraising I mean it's been a continuous fundraising thing right. which is on my website the silent um you can donate through there um so yeah that's that's been part of the hold up of the process is is I'm not I'm a very bad fundraiser it turns out um <laughs> it's very different when someone gives you the money to do a project yeah. versus you decide to do a project but um so there's that. I'm hoping, you know, I have a pretty good cut of it now, and I'm hoping to get it to an editor in a month or two. So I'm hoping by the end of the year, I'll at least have a rough cut. I can start really showing people. Um, I'd love to get it, you know, do the festival circuit, get mm -hmm. it streaming or something. But I figure, you know, worst case scenario, I'll put it out on YouTube and just try and market it because I just want it to be seen. You yeah. know, I mean, yeah. yeah, I'd love accolades for it or whatever. We all would. But you know, my my main goal is just to encourage others to speak out. There's there's no reason to go through all this stuff. No. Uh, and 
what, what, where can people find the place to financially support it if they want to? It's through uh, – there's a link on my website, thesilentgoldens.com. Okay. And it's a, there's a donate button. And then you're actually donating – it's um, tax deductible because you're actually donating to the International Documentary Association under my account. And then gotcha. I take the money. So gotcha. It's a little, a little plus there. If you're interested. Well, Ruth, thank you so much for uh, for sharing all that. And kudos on the awesome work that you're thank doing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Many, many thanks to Ruth. And again, shout out Juliet. Juliet also showed up to the uh, mental health talk that I, that I gave a couple of months ago. Big, big supporter of the show. And I appreciate, appreciate everybody's support. Let's get into some surveys. This is uh, from the Love Survey, and this is filled out by a person who calls himself the IRS. Interesting choice of a name. I love my plants, even when they clearly don't love me back. I love the feeling of freedom when I'm on the 101 and get past Santa Barbara, and it's just a sea of colorful chaparral and oak trees. I love house finches. They have such a cheerful call and are so comfortable around humans, they'll nest right over your front door. I love ferns and how they tuck themselves into little pieces of paradise on a rocky hillside. I love the little mom-and-pop Chinese food place by my house and how everyone in there seems open to casual conversation. I love black licorice and the look on people's faces when I tell them I like it. I offer some to them. They refuse. More for me. Everyone wins. How does somebody not like black licorice? It is... So much better than red licorice. Is there any other? Is there a third licorice? Remember Chuckles? Do they still make Chuckles? Oh, the black one. I'd always save the black one for, for last. So good. This is a shame and secret survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself elusive anorexic. She identifies as bisexual. She's 28, uh, says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, I've been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, a physiotherapist put his ungloved hand in and around my vagina, resulting in pretty significant pain. Yeah, that that is a huge fucking red flag. I know that sometimes physiotherapists have to do that um, when there's an is- issue with pelvic pain, but why they would put an ungloved hand is super fucked up. I also have this image of him sitting on top of me while doing it and holding me down when I tried to move. Sometimes I am scared that I just imagined it and it never really happened because it's hard to remember. I feel guilty because I went back to him for treatment. It only happened once. Uh, she's never been physically abused or emotionally abused. Uh, I hope that you, you've opened up to your therapist uh, about that because who knows, you know, talking about it might help get more clarity but i don't know I, I i my heart goes out to people who have fuzzy memories that that they they can't validate but they feel all the weight of a memory that is clear it's like you get all the shit with none of the clarity and uh i mean even the things that you do vividly remember your brain the brain of a survivor it will be clouded so to also have the actual memory clouded is um yeah deepest darkest thoughts i have wished for the people that i love to die so that i don't have to worry about them anymore 
Darkest secrets. I've eaten large quantities of food after restriction, and nothing terrifies me more than the people in my life finding out about that. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Someone comforting me, comfort, someone comforting me while I cry and forcing me to have sex afterwards. Uh, how does sharing that make you feel? I am not even ashamed of it, though I would never tell anyone either. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? That I have been sexually attracted to my best friend and housemate for years. I could never tell her because I know she would reject me and I would lose her. What, if anything, do you wish for? For someone to touch me and take care of me. Have you shared these things with others? I haven't because I am scared people would distance themselves from me if they knew how needy I am. Boy, can I just say to you, if only you knew how needy the rest of us are. And you would make such a great member of a local support group. Uh, whatever issue it's around, family dysfunction, um, or maybe a group therapy session, you know, led by a therapist. Um, because you sound like a really sensitive person battling a ton of self-judgment and, and fear around how you will be perceived. And I don't believe that intimacy is truly possible without taking that scary leap of letting somebody see us uh, warts, warts and all. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? I mostly feel sorry for myself. Um, and I, by that, I wonder if you mean... Um, Pity or self-compassion? I'm not sure which one you mean, but sending you, sending you some love. This is a happy moment. Oh, this is filled up by Wildflower again. God damn you, at every turn. There you are. Wildflower. Uh, happy moments. These are actually kind of loves. Yeah, I'm shaming you, Wildflower. You wrote it out on the wrong survey. I love getting into bed after a shower when I have clean sheets. We've done that one before, but here's what I like. I like how she goes, she continues after this. I lay in the middle of my double bed and move my arms and legs like I'm making a snow angel. At points for that one. I love that. Uh, and her other one, I love getting onto the freeway and blasting the Beach Boys in the car. It feels like freedom going fast with loud music. I wish I knew how old. Actually, I think you're 28 I th because I think that's what I remember from the, the previous survey. And it is so bizarre to me that somebody your age is into the Beach Boys, although maybe you're talking about Pet Sounds, which is a timeless album. But by the time I was a teenager or in my 20s, I, the Beach Boys was the last music that I wanted to hear. But Pet Sounds, holy fuck, God only knows. Maybe one of the most brilliant, perfect songs ever written. In fact, I was just watching a YouTube video, uh, and this musician broke down the genius of uh, God Only Knows and the chord structure and how it's not really in any one key, which gives it this kind of ethereal floating quality. And uh, Paul McCartney a pretty good songwriter said that God Only Knows is the most perfect song ever written. Can you imagine being somebody that wrote that and Paul McCartney saying that about your song? 
And again, any, any comments to make the podcast better? Uh, I would like to hear the nut butter song and story again. It's my favorite. Well, here, here you go. This is from, I think, the 2018 uh, episode with, uh, with Luke Palmer weeks ago. I love this particular food that that I get, and it's raw uh, cashew butter and raw pistachio butter. It's If you don't cook it, it keeps a lot of the um, nutrients and minerals and stuff in it. And uh, so I order it from this, this place, and I eat this stuff every day. It's just like perfect to eat between meals for, for me. Um, but I have to order it because I get it in, in bulk. And I was expecting it to come, and it didn't come. And I was like, okay, it's going to come tomorrow. And it doesn't come the next day. And so I call them, and while, while they're looking into what is taking uh, so long with this stuff, I'm put on hold. And this is the music. This is the actual music I was put on hold with. Paul, we've got some bad news about your cashew butter. There was an accident. It didn't make it. It almost made it to the box. We love you, Paul, but we don't think we're going to be able to fill your order by Thursday. I know we've let you down. But we don't want you to give up. We want you to find something else to spread on your crackers between now and Wednesday. As God is my witness, we will have some nut butter to you by a week from Friday. Hang in there. It's on its way. Who chooses that fucking music for hold music? (laughs) Especially around Christmas, when everybody, well, not everybody, when a large number of people are depressed to begin with. So, um, the shattered cashew jar is going to be laid to rest a week from Wednesday at Nut Butter Memorial Park if you're interested in paying your respects the lid won't be able to make it but the container will be there in five separate hearses well I I have the feeling I hadn't heard that in a while I have the feeling Wildflower might be the only person that finds that entertaining uh, this is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself the worst. So you know this is brimming with self-esteem. He's straight in his 20s, says that he was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused. He's not sure if he has been physically or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. I think about how I would have sex with people I see in public. I think about throwing glasses of water at people for no good reason. By their by the way, is there anybody that goes out in public that doesn't 
imagine another person naked or having sex with that person. I mean, I think it's different if you're consumed by the thought of that, but anyway, continuing, I think about throwing glasses of water at people for no good reason. I think about driving my car off the highway, not to kill myself, but to hurt myself to the point where my responsibilities disappear and I can be babied by those who love me. We get that one a lot, a lot. Um, a lot of people imagine, fantasize about being in a hospital bed so that pe- so that their, uh, their outward pain um, is similar to their inward pain and they can, they can be seen and comforted. And, you know, when I hear people say that, I... I I just so badly want them to begin to try to find their tribe so that you don't have to become physically injured to feel the compassion of somebody else or the friendship or the trust of somebody else. Darkest secrets. I'm abusive to my partner physically and mentally. She deserves none of it, yet I am a repeat offender. I tell myself I love her. I tell her I tell her I love her, then I turn around and mock her, tell her I hate her, threaten canceling plans to go to a friend's wedding, throw things at her or hit her. I've been taken to the hospital in the back of a police cruiser because my partner thought I was going to hurt myself seriously. Uh, I sometimes go to the adult massage parlor in town to feel like someone has an interest in me, knowing very well they are paid to act that way. Buddy, I... I I really hope that you can turn this from the simply hating yourself for what you do to turning your apology into an action. Um, really, uh, the best form an apology can take is is action. And I don't know whether it's anger management classes or therapy or something, but if you really truly care about your partner it will be more than words and you will work on yourself so putting that out there sexual fantasy is most powerful to you being pegged by my partner in the kitchen while high as a kite on cannabis while another woman sucks my cock how does it make you feel sharing that I feel embarrassed by this you shouldn't be embarrassed about that I mean, as long as the kitchen's tidy. If if there's a bunch of dishes in the sink, then you, my friend, are an animal. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? I would like to tell someone other than my... Oh, you do go to therapy. Other than my therapist that I have been abusive to my partner. I have not been able to because I am overcome with shame and scared about how they will react. I don't know if there are support groups for uh, people with a history of domestic violence, but I would imagine there are. And if not in person, I would imagine online. Um, uh, ask your therapist about that or Google Google something. I don't know. Is Google a safe way to search? I mean, some of you people Googled mental health and that led you to this podcast, so it can't be that safe. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could show more compassion to myself and others. I have the feeling that if you really start to to get to the root of the things that are driving your behavior, um, the things that you wish for are going to start to happen. I really do, but it takes effort. It takes a lot more than just being sorry. 
Um, yeah. Have you shared these things with others? No, because I am ashamed of the things I have done and the monster I have become. How do you feel after writing these things down? A little relieved, but mostly sad. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You are worthy. You are important. You are loved. Amen. Amen. Thanks for sharing that. I, I appreciate that. You know, a lot of the surveys that I read are where people are the um, victims of abuse. And uh, I always appreciate when we get someone filling out a survey where they the, are the abuser. Um, because I, I think we would, we always want to know um, more about where where does this behavior stem from? Is there anything are there tools that somebody can use or, or are there ways that, you know, obviously we, you know, we want people to do that kind of stuff to experience repercussions and consequences and for there to be laws and justice and all that other stuff. But ultimately, um, you know, what can, what can we as a society or what can even you learn uh, from this? And, I, and it's all a long way of saying thank you for, for sharing that. And, uh, yeah, this is from the love survey and this is filled out by uh, no November pain. And, uh, they were right. I love driving fast down a country road windows down with my music playing way too loud. My ears ring when I get out, but I don't care. Look at you. You might as well be wearing a, a fucking holster and chaps. I love looking at my seedlings and seeing that they are finally growing in spring. It feels like I didn't do anything at all and they still grow and live and just get on with it. Like nature just wants to give to anyone who shows who shows it the slightest attention. I love that one. I love this next one. That soft spot on my dog's nose in between his nostrils. You, my friend, are a dog lover. That is a dog lover. I uh, love that I can tell my fully sleeping boyfriend to come cuddle with me and he will somehow hear me every time and sleepily crawl over to my side of the bed and hold me. I love finding a mushroom in the woods, like nature picked you to be the one who was allowed to see it, like a little growing secret. I like that one. I love when I hear someone talk about something, usually on your podcast, that is the thing I've been journaling or talking to my therapist about recently. It feels like fate or synchronicity from around the globe. And I love pulling the toast out from under the broiler at the exact right time. Golden brown. Yes. Yes. Those are awesome. Thank you for that. This is a shame and secret survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself DJ. Not to be confused with mean DJ voice. Rockin' the Quad Cities, Paul, you're a piece of shit. All right, four in a row, Backman Turner Overdrive, taking care of business. Haven't heard from him in a while. Because I don't care for your podcast. All right, so I'm going to be down giving jello shots at Hooters. Come on down and party, man. It's Friday. DJ identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s. Says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. 
Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, in kindergarten, as another student uh, sat behind me, he stuck his finger in my pants all the way in my butt. When I would turn around, he quickly removed his hands and pretended like he wasn't doing anything, then would do it again when I looked back uh, when I looked back forward. In the moment, I liked it and hated it all at the same time. I liked the attention I was getting from my body, but it made me feel bad about myself. Uh, she has been emotionally abused. Uh, in middle school, my friends would constantly bring me down and make me feel bad about myself. They would pick on and bully me. They called me hippo because of a jacket I wore to hide my body. Uh, it made me look... Uh, and to hide my body, and it made me look even bigger. Uh, they would say, I'm too dark-skinned, and my hair was too thick. They analyzed everything I did and would laugh about it. Any positive experiences with abusers? Being around them made me feel important. It's such an interesting dichotomy. Somebody, how could you... Oh, maybe because they were the popular kids and you felt important because you were around them. Why are the popular kids always so fucking mean? Uh, deepest, darkest thoughts. I want a partner very damaged and crazy. They could, uh, they could hurt me, abuse me, and mentally destroy me all they want, and I would still want to stay with them. Not anymore, but I wanted to kill my little sister. I dream about killing myself in the most gory way, drifting out into the ocean as far as I can go until a shark eats me. Uh, darkest secrets. I peed the bed from 4 to 14. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you, being totally degraded in all ways, being forced to do something I don't want to, uh, have them take me so hard they nearly kill me. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my mom that even though she did all she could and did her best, she didn't raise me great. What, if anything, do you wish for? To die in the water. Have you shared these things with others? No, I haven't because no one in real life understands. I would disagree with that. I think people listening to this, myself included, uh, do understand maybe not the exact specifics of your life and the things that have happened to you, but the feelings of worthlessness and hopelessness and um, difficulty trusting. Um, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? Great, exclamation point. Well, let's start journaling then. I think that would be a great idea. It sounds like it helps you process some of this stuff, unless you're being sarcastic, but it doesn't seem like you are. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Let's run away together. Thank you for that. And uh, I... Um, I don't know what I want to say. Just going to move on. Sending you love. That's what I want to say. Uh, finally, this is a happy moment filled out by Riv. And uh, Riv writes, Age three, my mom and I are pretending to be butterflies hatching from cocoons in our living room, rolling ourselves up in the curtain, tumbling off the couch, running through the open space, and flying through the air together. I'll never forget the energetic joy I felt in my body, intensified by sharing it with someone I loved so much. 
I later became a choreographer and dancer as an adult, and when I perform, I still feel that passion and connection to my body's vitality, intensified by the audience's reciprocal love. And I always credit my mom with giving me my first dance lesson when I was three years old in our living room. Love it. Love it. So what else do I... How do I want to wrap this up? How about how about we dip back into uh, the wrap-up from, from 2018? Um, listen, if you're out there and you're struggling... Your cashew butter is on its way. I want you to go lay down on the couch. Take that quilt that says cheater. Wrap yourself up in it. Make a plate of crackers. Open the front door. And wait for the delivery man. Because help is on its way. So stupid. So stupid. <laughs> uh, if you're out there, never forget. You are not alone. And there's something else, but I don't know. My brain is fogged from civilization. <laughs> oh, yeah. What time is it right now? 10.58? Oh, yeah, I can probably squeeze a good four hours in. And then talk to Siri in my prayers tomorrow morning. If you're out there and you're struggling... Just take baby steps. Try to find your tribe. Find people that are safe, and life, life really can't get, can't get better. And um, never forget, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.